Let's pray. God, we thank you once again that you have called every one of us here to this place and down into the Patton Lodge and over in the Family Center if they're students and down in the other end of camp if they are children. You've called every one of us here, and it is by your design, not coincidence, that we are gathered together. This particular group is unique. It will never, ever be together again. And yet you've called us here, and we have things we want to learn. God, for the one who walked in here begrudgingly, for the one who stubbornly just doesn't really want to be here, for the one who thinks, I really don't need to learn anymore, would you change that heart? For the one who walked in here and thinks they have it all under control and um, they know pretty much all they need to know, would you change that heart? For the broken one who walked in and is lost and shattered in some way, there's a crisis, there's sorrow, there's grief, uh, maybe there's a new diagnosis, maybe there's some unsurety. Lord, whatever the circumstance, would you please be near to that one as well? Lord, we all need you wherever we are, and it just astounds me that in this world, there are so many hearts calling out to you, and you are big enough to reach each one. But not only are you big enough and great enough to reach each one, but you're compassionate enough to love each one and to meet that need. And so, God, we're just, we're, we stand in awe of who you are, and we're amazed by your grace and we love that you love us. Father, would you help us love you in return? Help us love you well. And we do that by being your disciples, by walking in your truth, by serving you and loving you, and listening to your ways, but also abiding in them and obediently following them. So, Lord, help us to listen better this morning. And, Lord, we do have things that we want to hear. And so we're grateful that we are here to listen. Use Blake, continue to use him to teach and to be your servant, your mouthpiece this morning. Thank you for pouring into him. And Lord, now we sit back and we listen to what pours out of him. So Lord, I ask that the words of all of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, not right to start. We know where you are. Good morning, class. A couple of follow-ups to uh, yesterday's uh, discussion. Uh, one, I, I have had several conversations with people who are either uh, living with a narcissist or have narcissists in their church or in, in a, one case uh, leading the church. And the question seems to be, so how do I deal with this person? Um, and my answer is, I don't know. Uh, because I know how not to deal with them. I haven't discovered yet how to deal with them, I'm afraid. I know that it won't do any good to try to debate or argue or use logic to convince someone who's a narcissist because uh, that individual uh, will always, always see themselves as winning that debate, and they love the debate. 
I think the answer is to pray for them and to uh, let the Spirit do the Spirit's work rather than you and me trying to, trying to intervene. But I know when we're talking about family members and people that are interrupting the life of a, a local church that we want to do something. Uh, I suspect there's not much we can do uh, in, in, the, in the natural realm uh, to bring someone from that place of narcissism. Second thing I wanted to respond to was some reading that I did yesterday afternoon where um, I've, I, I've been reading, and you may be interested in this book, it's, uh, it's called uh, Discipleship, hang on just a second. Uh, yeah, just Discipleship, and it's a, a series of essays that were done by scholars in a variety of settings in honor of Dr. Alan Coppage's ministry. Al has done a great deal of work hands-on, practical kind of work uh, in discipleship, bringing groups along. And some of his disciples and others uh, wrote some essays. To, the whole book is on various aspects of discipleship. And one of them is a, uh, a sermon that was edited by uh, Al's daughter Cricket, uh, but was delivered by her grandfather, who was Dennis Kinlaw, and Dennis delivered the sermon back in 1974 at the chapel uh, at Asbury, now Asbury University, at Asbury College. And in that sermon, I'll only, I know you don't want me to read to you, just, just a couple of lines, if I may. In that sermon, he speaks of his conviction about this business of discipleship. Listen to how closely it meshes with what we thought we were discovering. But a guy like uh, Dennis Kin, or yeah, Dennis Kinwell has known it for. Uh, 50 years, that ought not to surprise us, but it does. Uh, he said in that sermon, I'm fully convinced that the first step in discipleship is to know who Jesus is. And that just makes all kinds of sense, and we were talking about that in terms of conversion. And then he goes on, and the second step in discipleship is to find out who we are. That's where I was trying to go yesterday. When we discover what we can't do, even though we thought we could, then the Spirit comes and helps us to accomplish, and we're trying to bring others into that relationship. He goes on to say, we must understand that He is enough for every situation, and then we must recognize our inability to meet the needs of human life. So that's really what we're talking about. How do we help people to come to that conclusion? And our focus has been on people uh, who know uh, Jesus, who have taken that first step, but haven't moved beyond that to, to the step of discovering that they're not enough. They can't get the job done. So those are a couple of things. And then I just want to say how grateful I was for last night's uh, message here in the tabernacle, and especially the second point in that message, where if you recall, uh, our speaker talked about uh, listening to God under hearing the voice of God, powerful illustration where he very naturally, it seems to me, didn't respond uh, when his wife was having a seizure, but he prayed and listened, and he learned to listen to that voice. I'm grateful for that for several reasons. One, it's a great point, powerful illustration, well done. But I'm also grateful because I want to talk with you about this area of listening today. And I knew that in our minds, we'd immediately go to listening to God. And I want us to say, okay, we've talked about that. Now let's talk about listening to each other. Because I'm convinced that 
that list, that top ten list of folks that you've got that you want to disciple, there are people on there who are crying out for someone just to listen to them. Uh, and I'll, I hope to develop that this morning and convince you a- as well. But first, an illustration that I have never in all my life brought to a Michigan congregation before. And I do it with fear and trembling. I almost interrupted Ellen to say, here, I have a special prayer request for those people who were Michigan fans as long ago as 1993. It's been called the most famous timeout in NCAA history. It happened on April the 5th in 1993. I, I do this, I still do this in a college classroom, although most of them were three and they haven't got a clue. But they kind of perk up and go, oh, Neff's talking about something makes sense this time for a change. Anyway, and I love it that I got some chuckles like you all know exactly where this is going. Michigan versus North Carolina for the NCAA finals and the Fab Five. You all remember the Fab Five? Uh, They were down 73 to 71. They had been expected to win the year before, uh, and that got interrupted. And now here we are with North Carolina in uh, the national championship game. Uh, Chris Weber of your Fab Five, rebounded a Pat Sullivan missed free throw. There's 20 seconds left on the clock. Weber travels in the backcourt, but the referee misses it. So you all have probably long since forgotten it, but I'm going to refresh your memory here in just a moment. Uh, the referee missed the travel, and Weber goes into the front court, into the, into the attacking zone, right in front of the Michigan bench, and with 11 seconds left, he's trapped there. No place to go. No outlet. And so he does what every good basketball player would do in that situation. He called timeout. Good move, right? Not because Michigan was out of timeouts. And so NCAA rules are when you call a timeout that you're not entitled to, that's a technical foul. North Carolina got two free throws and the basketball and ultimately a 77-71 to win in a national championship game. You, you want to see it? <laughs> yeah, watch. Watch the, see, he traveled. I know he traveled. A huge mental mistake, the announcer said. Let me shift it just a little bit. It was a huge listening mistake. Uh, Coach Fisher said immediately after that ball game, he had reminded the team in the last timeout, we're out of timeouts, no more timeouts. Every assistant coach on the planet said, yeah, he did, that's right. And there still are interpersonal conflicts between Weber and some of the players, the other players on the Fab Five, about that incident because many of the players remember that Coach did remind us there was no timeout. Now, before we beat up on Chris Weber, let's, let's, let's be fair. Uh, Weber went on to become a decent, at least, maybe better than that if you're from Michigan, uh, NBA player. Uh, he, uh, he redeemed himself over and over and over again, just not to Michigan fans. But the reality is, most of it, he, he's like a lot of us. 
His failure to listen is glaring to the rest of us. But most of us do not have the opportunity to listen to thousands of screaming fans with a national championship hanging on the line either. So give the guy a break, and let's talk about ourselves in terms of listening. Here are some facts. Here are some things that we know about listening. We know that most people think they're better listeners than they are. Now, how can I make a statement like that? Well, because researchers have asked people to rate themselves and to score themselves in terms of their listening ability. And then there are standardized listening tests that you can give people. I wish that we had time for that. We don't. You know, it takes several class hours, and I don't even do it in my basic class anymore, but used to give students a, a standardized listening test after I'd ask them, what percentile do you think you'll be in? I have never, in all the years I did that, and I did that when I was teaching a listening class at Tacoma Falls College, I've never had a student who rated themselves inferior to where they actually were. This is not a most people, this is almost universal. All of us think we're better listeners than we are. That's what I'm trying to say. So you're sitting back there saying, oh, this is not, you know, I don't have to pay much attention to this. I'm glad you're doing this now because a lot of the people in this tabernacle need to hear this stuff, but whew, thank God I'm not one of them. Uh, you might want to give some thought to the fact that most people are better listeners than they think they are, or, or most people think they're better listeners than they are. Here's what we know, another fact. Immediately after listening to just a 10-minute presentation, a half or a third of a sermon for most of our churches, a 10-minute presentation, the average listener can only retain about 50% of what they heard. So our retention rate is, is almost half before we ever begin. And here's what really gets interesting. 48 hours later, so by Tuesday morning, uh, the average listener's only got about a fourth of what the pastor said. I remember when I was preaching on a regular basis, if somebody came and asked me a question about a sermon on Wednesday night at Bible study, I was just blown away, overwhelmed. Uh, that was the spirit working because people in the natural realm just don't even remember by Wednesday what, they talk, what I talked about on Sunday morning. And so now we're beginning to understand the whys of that. It's because our inability to listen. Here's one that I love. Listening skill we know drops from about 90% in grade one all the way down to 28% in high school. Here's how that was studied. A team of researchers went to local schools and with permission of administration, they interrupted classes at various levels. They'd knock on the door, go into the first grade class, visit with the boys and girls a little bit, and then say, oh, by the way, what was teacher talking about when we knocked on the door? And in first grade, 90% of the kids can say accurately what the teacher was talking about. By the time they got to high school classes, knock on the door, interrupt, visit for a little bit, say, what was teacher? That had dropped to 28%, which tells me as an educator, there's something about the way our educational system works that is teaching people not to listen. The reality is the, the farther we go in the educational process, the less likely we are to be effective in terms of listening to other people. And this, <coughs> this listening problem, I'm going to use a word here uh, that I've chosen carefully. I, I, don't, I don't use words willy-nilly. I, I picked this word. There's a listening crisis in America. The inability to listen to one another is a crisis. 
the inability to listen to the people on your discipleship list, your top ten list, is keeping them from deeper discipleship. You and I need to be the exception that is people who know how to listen. In an elementary school class, uh, one little boy on the playground had a long, sad, dejected face such that his playmate said to him, what's wrong with you? Look like you lost your best friend. He said, no, I'm worried about my mom. His playmate said, what's wrong with your mom? Is she sick or something? He said, I don't know. It, it may be a sickness. I'm not sure. She talks to herself. And the other little guy thought for a moment and then offered his condolences by saying, ah, don't worry about it. Think about it this way. Teacher talks to herself all the time, thinks the whole class is listening. That's the state, not just of education in America, but of listening in general in America. And it has invaded our homes and our families. Uh, those of you who are smugly sitting and saying, thank God this doesn't relate to me because I know how to listen, let me tell you that the listening crisis is real and it has invaded your home and your family. Many years ago, I was teaching at Tacoa Falls College, and I had a young lady, her name was Misty, and I'm telling you her story, it's been years since I got her permission, but I did ask her to share her story and a poem. Misty grew up in a parsonage home. Um, Misty was in the church every time the doors were open. Uh, she was head of the youth group. Uh, she, was, she was just an exemplary model citizen at the local church. In her school life, Misty shared with the class in an introduction speech, she was a much different individual. Misty said, I was living a dual life. I was living a life of drugs and alcohol and promiscuity in my school, which was far enough away from the church that nobody really knew about my two lives. Misty said, I came to the point where I felt like I was being pulled in two that my two lives were pulling me one, 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 and yet one, the other. And Misty came to the, to the conclusion, always, always, always the wrong conclusion, that the only way of escape was to take her own life. And so Misty determined to commit suicide. But in a plea for help, she decided to try one more time to see if she couldn't get her mother to pay attention. And so she went into the kitchen of their parsonage home. Misty said, I hadn't talked to my mom face to face for a long, long time. And so I thought, I'll write a poem, and maybe she'll get it. And so Misty went into the kitchen of their parsonage home, and her mom was busy uh, stirring something, making something for the family dinner. And Misty said, Mom, I need to tell you something. And without looking up from the stove, continuing the process of getting the family meal ready, her mother said, go ahead, Misty. What do you want to say? And Misty wrote her mom a poem. Here's the poem. The perfect home, the perfect place. The pressure's on to run the race. Mommy and Daddy will always be here to lend an understanding ear. But little girl soon grows older. Teenage words are getting colder. Her family no longer stands by her side. By the law of the word, she no longer abides. At her soul, peer pressure tugs. Coke and pot and other drugs. 
She's now so high she can't come down, but she wants to get off this merry-go-round. Her friends don't care her state of mind. Now they're all gone, and she's left behind. It started out a little joke. They said she was chicken to take a toke. They partied together and things like that. Now she's the one they're laughing at. Gun in her hand, pills on her tongue. Sixteen years is much too young. A note explaining her suicide, bullet through her head, and then she died. Misty said, I read that poem to my mom, and I waited for her response. And I waited. She continued to work at the stove. I waited. I waited so long that I thought maybe she had not even heard my poem. But something caused me not to speak anymore. It was her turn to speak. I waited. And finally, Misty said, my mom turned briefly from her work at the stove and said, Misty, that's weird, and went back to her work. Misty went on in that speech to tell her class how except for a providential divine intervention, she would have taken her own life that day. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what's wrong with that mom? What is wrong with that woman? And then I began to think about my mom, some other moms that I knew, some dads, some pastors. I began to think about a lot of folks in America today who are just like that mom. I submit to you there's a crisis of listening in our land. There are people who are crying out like Misty was for someone to listen to them. There are people on your top ten discipleship list who need more than anything for someone just to pay attention and let them talk. In fact, there may be some folks in this room who are saying, I would just love to intervene right here. I'd love to talk for a minute. And so I, I want us to try something. I want you to find two other people. The numbers are very, very important. Groups of three, please. Please, groups of three. And here's what we're going to do. I want you in your group of three to decide who's got the next birthday. He or she gets to be next. So if your birthday's today, congratulations, you're number one. Is that what it is? Saturday. Pick your friends carefully back there. So you know how to do it. You've got an August birthday, September birthday. Find the person whose birthday will be next. They'll be first. And I'm going to give them two minutes to talk to the other two people. Say whatever you want to say. Introduce yourself. Tell them what's wrong with them. Tell them what you've been wanting to tell them. Tell them what's wrong with NAF. Uh, tell them why you don't like this class anymore. Tell them what, say whatever you want to say. You say, well, I can't think of anything. Then look at them. But two listeners, you cannot speak for two minutes. You cannot respond. You listen. You can nod your head. You can encourage them to keep talking. You can say, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. All non-verbally but you be quiet. In two minutes, I'll call time and we'll go to person number two, which is to the right of 
the next birthday, and they get two minutes, which means person number three now has listened for four minutes, and my guess is they're going to have something to say. <laughs> and when I call time, we'll move to person number three. A six-minute exercise in the midst of this listening uh, discussion because I think, we'll, I think we'll learn some things. Will you play the game? Find two people, find out who's got the next birthday real quick, and then I'll give you time, and we'll go for two minutes. Go. Hurry. If you don't want to do it with the people that are close, right, right there with you, go find somebody. It's all right. can do it with strangers in this room. Find your significant other or find a stranger. Either way is okay. You got a group of three? You know whose birthday's next? Everybody got a birthday? Whoop, excuse me. I have two orphans up here who are looking for some place to fit in and talk. Got somebody? Who needs a partner? Right here's a lady that'll take you. I have a lady over here that needs a couple of partners. She's got right here. Thank you very much. I need another person here. Do we have anybody who does not have a partner? Huh? Anyone? Everybody got a partner? Okay, you know who's got the next birthday? Ready to go? Ready to go? Here we go. Person. Okay, just, just go ahead. You, you can be uh, one and three. Here we go. Person number one, go. Everybody else be quiet. All right, rotate to the right. You be quiet now, and the second person gets to speak. Move to the right. New speaker. Everybody else be quiet. All right, rotate. The last person gets to talk now. You all just visit. The last person gets to talk now. Everybody else be quiet. Here we go. Two minutes. Go. All right, thank you very much. That worked so much better than I dreamed it would work. Thank you for doing that. Ellen, I changed my mind. We need the microphone for a minute. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Ellen's going to bring the mic as we, as we find a couple. We don't have time for a lot of this, but I saw so much, so much going on, so many dynamics that I really think it might be good to hear from you. So uh, let, me, let me ask uh, three people, three people uh, who will be first. What was it like to talk and not get any kind of verbal feedback. Ellen, bring the mic, will you please? I changed my mind while you were engaged. Who will be first? Tell me about talking in this situation. What was it like to talk? And nobody was, was respect. Yes, right here. This lady will help. Let us have the mic so, so you can teach the others, please. Thank you. I really want to tell you one thing first, though. In our early basketball camps, Chris Weber and Jalen Rose were both here before the youth center was built for basketball out at the high school one day at our basketball camp from the Wonderful. University of Michigan. <laughs> did you tell the others that, or did they already know it? Yep, I had to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> right. What was it like to talk with the kind of feedback that you got? Um, I was the last one to talk, and I was just so absorbed in listening to them, and I talk a lot anyway, okay. it, it, too much probably, that it wasn't difficult for me to talk, but I was... They were just so good to respond to what they So they did you talk said. about the things that they had been talking about? I was thinking about it, but they, I had to tell a little bit about myself because they didn't know, you know, anything about me either. So Okay. 
Okay. Thank you. Who, who else? What was it like being the talker in this brief exercise? Ran out of things to talk. You ran out of things to yeah. say. Just not surprised. Uh, because normally you start talking with people, you get feedback, and you feedback back and forth. Takes two of us to be engaged in this right. uh, conversation right. kind of thing. You're supposed to not talk about yourself. Yeah. And here you are, you're talking about yourself. Yeah. You know, and you, you found yourself doing Hello. that. Hello. Yeah. 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 It's Very good. Yeah. You, you learn. Good. Well, uh, somebody else. Did anybody find this liberating? Go ahead. I'll listen to you, even if you didn't find it liberating. The one thing I found like, while talking was you get feedback, but not verbally, by their eyes, the look on their face, and whether they're really listening to you or not. Right. And, and let me piggyback on that to offer this. Uh, experts say that about 80% of what we hear in terms of response comes from their nonverbals. So you don't need to be verbalizing all the time. You need to be nodding, shaking your head, hmm, and, you know, encouraging people to go on. Go ahead. I said three, here's four, and then we're going to shift to the other side. I didn't have no problem getting on top of that. I've never met these gentlemen. Uh -huh. It was a pleasure to meet them and to talk with them. And when you start talking about God and his goodness to you, and how he's answered prayers. Some prayers have never been spoken, the heart's desire. I mean, you've got a lot to say, and it's so nice to listen to others that okay. do, does the same thing. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Somebody uh, tell us real quickly, what was it like to have to listen for four minutes and not be able to verbalize? I have a hard time just listening because I want to help them. I want to like learn more about what their situation is. I ask questions. I dig deeper. And I don't know. Maybe that's not good. Uh, I know, but I, it's let's my just heart. Let's I just, just let that hang there. I didn't come to judge. But the reality is that you're saying, I wanted to help them. Uh, I wanted to help them talk and wasn't allowed to do it. Somebody else, what was it like to be a listener uh, for four minutes? I was third in my group, and um, I'm a talker also. And I, in, a, in normal conversation, I have a tendency to try and think of what I should be saying. How can I be cool in the conversation? Hear, hear that. We're in this back to one, that. because I had to keep my mouth shut, I was really listening for a change. So I really learned a lot by this exercise. My mom was first, poor thing, and she was just froze. Because um, it was hard, because she didn't really know what to talk about. And by the third person, it seemed to get easier with each person because, oh, I could talk about that subject or whatever. But definitely I learned a lot from this because I had to keep my mouth shut. Right in front of you, the lady asked for the mic, if we could, please. I was going to say, I just wanted to be able to ask a question because I wanted to have them elaborate further. And I'm like, you know, I kept wanting them to keep going so I'd learn more about it. But went in a right. different direction. So, so there is something that is lost, but on the other hand, there was much that was gained by us just being quiet and, and listening. Uh, last word, anybody, in terms of your listening in this exercise, or shall I move on? Oh, I got two last words over here. Aaron, please. Thanks. And then there's a lady behind. We'll listen to her, and then I got to move on. Uh, once again, this uh, is going along with uh, what 
Ruth said, but uh, a long time ago I heard a song. It was a line in a song that said, uh, we only listen long enough to know how we're going to respond. And so since then, I'm coming uh, to laugh. That's, yeah. uh, that's something that I've been convicted about, which I know my wife will find funny because I have no problem talking. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I wanted to intentionally lean into that to where it became my, I was a third person to talk. And uh, I, I didn't know where I was going to start. And it was nice to not and already know what I was going to say before I said it. And so. Kelly's nonverbals are precious. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's so cool. And who was it back here? Yeah, last word on this. Um, I just think it was amazing that the three of us all talked about what was most important in our heart at this particular moment. Okay. And um, we were able to um, relate and accept without judgment. Good, good. Let me just make this observation. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in our world, in our culture, who long for the experience you just had and have no one to listen to them. There are probably people on your list that are longing for someone to listen. The book of Job is the story of a man who was hurting. You remember? He lost everything just like that in an instant of time. Within the same 24-hour period, he lost his business, his 401K, and his kids. And his friends came, and they gathered around because Job was on their top ten list to make disciples. And so they began to talk and to visit about the circumstances. And Job would offer an observation from time to time, and his friends would correct him and say, well, yeah, but you've forgotten about this, Job. His disciple-making friends spent a lot of time in the first 20 chapters of the book trying to fix Job. And then in what I believe is the turning point of the whole book, 21.1, Chapter 21, verse 1, Job speaks, and he says, Listen carefully to my words, and let that be your consolation. Or in the New Living Translation, listen closely to what I'm saying. That's one consolation you could give. Or translation according to Neff, shut up and listen, and let that be your ministry. Have you ever thought about a ministry of listening? I believe if we're going to be successful in this disciple-making business, one of the things we're going to have to master is as we go, listen. As we go, listen. So let me, let me just give you an overview of what I think a listening ministry might look like. What are some characteristics of a listening ministry. One characteristic is this, it's not crowded. You can begin a ministry of listening and you'll be the only one in your neighborhood, your family, your church who's engaged in that kind of ministry. The ministry of listening is not crowded. There are not, uh, there are not academic degrees being offered to people in ministry of listening. I wonder if maybe it wouldn't be a good idea, but you can get in this ministry pretty easily. Second, it is vitally necessary. We are at a time in American culture when it's absolutely essential 
that someone, many someones, develop a ministry of listening. Listen to some data. 50% of Americans report to researchers that they are lonely most of the time. 57% of meals eaten in America on any given day are eaten alone. That can go all the way from widows, widowers, eating at their dining room table by themselves to folks in this room grabbing a burger at a fast food joint on their way to the next appointment. But the reality is that 57% of the meals that we eat, we eat alone. I have a coworker in the housekeeping department at Indiana Wesleyan who a few weeks ago on a Friday afternoon was headed out from, from the hall where I, have, where I was working with my door open. And she stopped and she came in and, and she said, I hope you have a great weekend, Dr. Now. I said, well, thank you. I hope you do too. I said, do you have uh, big plans for the weekend? And she, I hate weekends. And I said, sit down, Lori, what's up? She said, there's nobody to talk to on the weekend. She said, my husband works on the weekend, and I work through the week. And, and then she realized what she'd just done, and she said, hey, he's a great guy. I love him. I, I, I'm just telling you why I hate weekends. And she said, um, so I spend most of the weekend by myself, and I find I really enjoy, I look forward to Monday morning so I can come to work and interact with my coworkers. I've come to the conclusion she's not alone. Less than half of Americans report meaningful conversation with another human being on any given day. I mean, think about that. I know it's data and, and it's difficult to absorb when somebody's reading it to you, but less than half of us, when researchers say, did you have a meaningful conversation with somebody yesterday, cannot report that they did. Ellen, thank you and Kevin for inviting us to your table this morning. I had a meaningful conversation before I had my first cup of coffee. But you know how many people there are in our, in our world that are desperate for that? That don't ever get that? Not today? Not any day? The majority of adults, I'm still reading data, the majority of adults, 18 to 22 years old, report that they have no one in whom they can confide. I mean, those are pretty tumultuous years. Most of the people in this room can remember them at least. Those are, those are times when we need to bounce ideas off people and say, you know, what do you think about this? Or I got this issue or this. Most people, ages 18 to 22, say, I don't have anybody I can confide in. The highest users of social media report the greatest loneliness. I leave it to you to figure that out. But I wonder if people aren't reaching out, trying to find somebody uh, that, that might relate, might interact, because in their own sphere, there is no such person. A ministry of listening re whoop, requires a tolerance for silence. And most of us have an extreme intolerance of silence. Job's friends are great examples. 
even after he asks them, will you just please be quiet and let that be your ministry? They keep responding to every word he says. If we're going to be engaged in a ministry of silence, uh, of, of listening, we've got to learn to live with silence. Two of you, as I recall, mentioned the fact that we spend a lot of time processing what someone's saying while they're saying it so that we can get our next response down. And we love that. You know, when you come and ask me a question, I listen to the first portion of your question. I start to formulate my response so that we don't have a long downtime in between and I can give a great answer and feel like I'm really on target. And you want me to do that because you don't want there to be a, a five-minute silence after your question while I think about it and then get back to it. That's a quick way to shut off questions. It's the way we communicate. And we become so good at it, uh, at working on our responses while other people are talking, that s many of us can do it on the basis of a single word. Uh, the experts call this an emotion-laden word. And when I hear you use certain words, then I know exactly what I want to say in response. I've got my mini-lecture already for the people who use that word. When we went to North Georgia for the very first time, uh, our, our kids were small, elementary school, junior high age, and Joanna, fourth grade, I'm thinking fourth grade, and it was a very difficult move for Joanna, our youngest, because Joanna's very gregarious. She's very outgoing. I mean, she keeps track of how many friends she's got, like notches on her gun belt. Uh, you know, she, she loves people. And uh, so we moved in the middle of the school year because Dad was a jerk, and I got an opportunity to go teach where I wanted to teach, and so here we go. And uh, so in January, we're packing up, going, and, and Joe, Joe suffered. I mean, she would come home after school, night after night after night. Daddy, can I please go home? And home, we were living in northeast Georgia, home to her meant northwest Ohio. And she's convinced that there's, Daddy, I could live with some of my friends. I know they'd let me, and you and Mom could come see me on the weekend, or maybe you could come next summer. And sh she's serious as a heart attack because she's hurting. And one day she got off the bus, and I, saw, I could tell by the way she walked in the house that something had changed. Her countenance was different. She was Joe again. And I'm so excited because I'm thinking, okay, we're finally through this crisis. I said, honey, what happened? She said, I think I found a friend. I said, that's so cool. She said, yeah, we talked and, and everything. I can't wait to see her again tomorrow. Well, the next day she got off the bus, and it was the old, we had to move Joe back again, clumping into the house. Uh, something went wrong. And I said, honey, what happened? She said, I don't know. She don't want to be my friend. I said, well, you know, I'm thinking just fourth graders, you know. That's the way. I said, what happened? Tell me exactly what happened. She said, I'm walking down the hall after school, and, and she's walking with me. We're in northeast Georgia, Tocoa, Tocoa Falls, Georgia. And uh, she said, where are you going, Joe? She said, I'm going down the end of the hall and get a pop. And her little friend stopped and put her hands on her southern bell hips and said, I didn't know you were a Yankee. <laughs> How does she do that? On the basis of a single word, the word pop. If you come from Michigan, you drink pop. Uh, if you come from the upper Mississippi Valley, that's, a, that's an okay expression. But let us recognize that nobody else in the country drinks pop. They might pop one another in the nose, but they don't drink this stuff. If you come from New England, you drink soda. 
Anybody from the deep south? You drink Coke, yeah. It's all Coke. Coke is a generic term. Perfectly legitimate to go in a restaurant in Atlanta, Georgia and say, I have a Coke. What kind? Pepsi. <laughs> they don't have it because we're proud of Coca-Cola Bottling Company and the fact that it's America's very first soft drink and on and on and on it goes. But they don't drink pop for crying out loud. So now this little girl is attributing to my daughter all the horrors of a war that's been over for 200 plus years because her grandfather taught her about the burning of Atlanta when the war was for all intents and purposes over. Her grandfather's one of those people that called it the war of Yankee aggression. He didn't, people who drink pop cannot be trusted in her understanding, in her mind. So on the basis of a single word, she decided about friendship and what my daughter was saying. You say, oh, I would never do such. Yes, you do. It's just different words for you and for me. I don't know what's in your lexicon of emotion-laden words, but you got them. I guarantee it. One guy said to me, the word mother-in-law does that to me. Just kind of sends shivers up my spine. Can't <laughs> think straight after that. Whatever they are, we need to learn to recognize and, and uh, uh, require those periods of silence. It's okay to wait. It's okay to say, I really don't know the answer to that. Let me think about it a bit. I hope it's okay. I did it like three times yesterday, and some of you are still looking at me and wondering, what in the world is this guy doing? He can't answer the questions. I'm sorry, I don't know everything. I'm here to stir up thinking. And it's okay for us uh, to deal with silence. I deal with my public speaking students with this all the time. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, 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 you know what I'm talk, uh, talking about? Uh, yeah, we call, them, we call them filler words or vocalized pauses. Uh, you can't even write them in a book. You can't even print them. There's no word. It's just a, uh, just a guttural. And why do they do that? Why do students do that? Why do I still do that? Because we have a very low tolerance for silence. I'm standing here and there are 100 people looking at me. And they're saying, what's wrong with him? You old boy have a heart attack or something? Come on, Neff, we paid to be here. Talk. <laughs> and so when I don't have anything uh, to say, I just fill that up and cover that up uh, with something that makes no sense. Fourth, a ministry of listening utilizes all the senses. It's not just an ears ministry. In fact, some of you may have already noted the irony of a fat old man with hearing aids in both of his ears whose favorite expression is, would you say that for me again? I'm having trouble following that. It's too noisy in here, all that stuff. Uh, trying to teach people how to listen. But I think it's important and appropriate because listening is not just an auditory process. Some of you are good listeners even though you don't hear very well because you read nonverbals because you understand people's movement and their inflection. You, you may not have trained in it. You may not think about it, but you know where that. You can tell what's going on in a person's life by what they don't say, like you do by what they do say. Jesus did this. There's that great passage where Jesus is at a Lions football game at Ford Stadium in Detroit. 
Now, how do I know that's where it's set? Because everyone in this room knows that if Jesus were here, he'd be a Lions fan, right? <laughs> and the game is <laughs> the only one here. All right, well, I didn't do a good audience analysis, but I'm going ahead with it now. And the game has gone down to the last seconds. Last second field goal before anybody knew who was going to win. So everybody waited, and now there's this huge crowd on the mezzanine as everybody's moving and jostling and making their way to the chariots so they can beat the big chariot jam downtown. <laughs> and all at once, there in the middle of the mezzanine, Jesus stops and says, Who touched me? And Peter, I'm sure it was Peter. I'm ad-libbing. You need to look at a little bit of this in the Scripture, but I don't think I'm damaging it too much. Peter comes up and he says, oh, sorry, we don't understand him either. He gets like this every once in a while. Boss, it's okay. Nobody, you know, blood, no foul, right? He, it's okay. Let's just, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. Somebody touched me and meant it. Who touched me? And this little old lady comes up out of the crowd and she said, it was me. I've had this issue of bleeding for a long, long time. And I was thinking if I could just touch the hem of your garment, I'd be made well. And you know what? <laughs> it's working. The point is Jesus, listen to the words, heard her touch. He sensed that touch. Now, we live in a whole different world. And uh, far be it for me to suggest you go out and touch somebody, and I get all the fallout from that, you know. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to turn you into a bunch of touchy-feelies. What I'm trying to do is to get us to recognize that if you're going to be involved in a ministry of listening, sometimes an arm around the shoulder is appropriate. That's what Job's asking for here. Would you just be quiet, helper, and listen to me? That's what he's saying. Would you put an arm around my shoulder? Would you walk with me for a bit as we were one? A ministry of listening requires a level of spiritual trust that will challenge most of us. Here's what I mean. If you are going to engage in a ministry of listening in order to win disciples, you are going to have to sometimes forego giving your solution to their problem. Because the reality is you and I all think that we know the solutions to every person on our discipleship list problem. But maybe we don't. There's more than one way to get to the desired outcome. And what happens is when we try to offer our solutions to every time somebody speaks, what we're saying is, I want you to come to know the Holy Spirit, but I don't trust the Holy Spirit enough to let the Holy Spirit do the work here. We are, in effect, doing our disciple-making work under our own power and under our own strength when we babble all the time. Some of what Job's friends were saying was accurate. That wasn't the point. He didn't want to hear their accurate assumptions. He just wanted to vent. There are some of us, beloved, that process verbally. My wife has lived with one for 44 years, and sometimes it's created some difficulty 
because I'm just running down options and saying, well, we could do this, or maybe this would be a good way to go, or why don't we look at that possibility? And she picks up on one of them, usually the one that she thinks is right, and says, well, you said we were going to do this. Well, yeah, but I was just talking because I process that way. I'm trying to figure out what's the right course of action, and I do that best out loud. So how will the people on your list ever be able to process that way if you have to speak up and intervene on behalf of the Holy Spirit every time they tell you about their circumstances? I, I, wish, there were a sh I wish there were better language to suggest this to folks. I'm not saying that we don't rely on the Holy Spirit. We do rely on the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. Yeah, but if this person would do this and this and this, it's biblical. I know it's biblical. And they'll figure out it's biblical someday too if you'll just listen to them and let them come to their own conclusions. Uh, I'm guessing there'll be some comments on that one. When we get there, let's go on. The last point I want to make, and then we'll listen to you for a moment. A ministry of listening has an ethical dimension. If you get serious about being engaged in a ministry of listening, you're going to hear some junk that you need to forget. Evangelical Christians have a problem with this. That everything we know needs to go to Wednesday night Bible study, prayer meeting, with all the gory details. And we need to get over that. We are not trustworthy all too often. So that people recognize, I don't dare tell her, or I don't tell, tell him, or everybody downtown's going to know it. And you say, man, I just want people to pray. Well, then trust the Holy Spirit and say, we need to pray for Susie. We need to pray for Joe. Or even better, one of the people on my top ten list needs prayer. Would you pray for number five for me? God knows. And the people who are praying don't need all those details. We are not trusted as listeners sometimes because we have proven we're not trustworthy. And so Job calls out to the people on whom his name appears in their top ten list and says, just be quiet. Just listen to me and let that be your ministry. A ministry of listening. Are you available? What questions or comments? We've got a few minutes. Yes, ma'am. Whose hand? About 12 years ago, my church realized that we had a lot of older members who were lonely, so they provided, they came up with a position for someone to be on staff part-time, and I took that position. So I visit with the homebound, and one of the things I like to do is to get them to laugh because people have forgotten how to laugh. So we talk, we have communion together, and I'm always telling myself, who is a fix-it person, I'm there for their spiritual needs, not their earthly needs. Would you keep the microphone a minute? Would you uh, either confirm or, if you must, deny? 
are, is this crisis that I'm describing real? Are you finding that among your people, that people really are looking for somebody to listen to them? Yes, absolutely. And I also have my father, who's 97 years old, and I visit him. He's in assisted living by his choice. I go every other day, and we have a conversation. And by going every other day, I don't have a lot of new things to talk to him about. But I've noticed that when I do ask him a question, I think he either has not heard me or doesn't have a response. So I sit quietly, and it just takes him longer to think about what he wants to say. It takes longer to process, right. Right. Yeah, so I good. think sometimes when we're talking, even with younger people, they're thinking about the answer, and we just need to give them time and not fill in that pregnant gap. Thank you so much. That's helpful. Yeah, good. Who else has a comment or an observation or question? Right, right in front. Oh, okay. We'll get to you. I promise. Um, I have a sister that when I was very, um, how would I say, on fire for God, and she wouldn't stop listening to this crazy music. Well, I'd been delivered from listening to that junk. But my sister just would not do that, and I would not shut up. Uh, finally, she got sick enough about me, and she kind of right in my face told me, why don't you shut up? And, and, and I, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. I shut up. She got saved. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I that's powerful. Right here. It was a comment. I can't, I can't even follow up to that. That's got too much power on its own. Thank you. Uh, somebody pointed out to me, or I heard it or read it, or, uh, that in the Native American culture, there is not as much senility because that older person, when they talk, they listen. Hmm. That older person hmm. is respected. Mm -hmm. I... I I don't know, I can't confirm that with regard to Native Americans, but in most cultures in the world, uh, older people are higher regarded than they are in America. We, we regard very positively youth and vigor, and there's something to be said for that. But I know the Eastern cultures, for example, and the Native Americans may be among them, are people who regard uh, uh, those who have age as those who have wisdom. Yeah. I just wanted to make a comment about the um, you had mentioned the story about the person who was thinking of suicide. And it reminded me of uh, and how it relates to communication. Um, I don't know how many people here have heard of Kevin Hines, but he's someone who attempted suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he was one of just very few that have survived that. And he goes around and tells his story about his struggles with mental illness and his um, struggles with suicide. And when he talked about jumping off the bridge, he said after he did that, he said this was a bad mistake, a wrong decision, but it was too late. But um, he shares a story, and one of the things that he talked about that really struck me when I listened to him was, he said if anyone that day had just smiled at him and said, how are you doing, he was not going to go through it. Right. And he talked about another story of someone else who did complete suicide by jumping off the bridge, they found in that person's backpack a letter that said the same thing. If anyone would just smile and say, hey, how are you doing? So that whole concept of listening and being there for someone could save a life. We never know who we're going to impact. Well spoken. Remember when you ask someone, hey, how you doing, to listen to their response? Uh, I have made a game 
out of uh, telling people terrible, but doing it with a high voice and a smile. And about 50% of people go, great, and keep right on going. They don't care how I'm doing. <laughs> so I would encourage you. It's your, your comment is very appropriate. I agree with it 100%. I just want to piggyback on it and say, when you ask somebody how they're doing, pay attention to how they're doing. Some of us may tell you and, and really want to be heard. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about how um, sometimes we're uncomfortable with the quiet. And I grew up with several people in my life who just couldn't have it silent ever. And I was never that way, and so it was hard for me to understand. And so I was just relating to the fact that sometimes it's hard for me to be still in the presence of God and to listen to his voice. Mm -hmm. And um, just relating that same thing to our relationships with people. And, um, you know, I just feel like it's difficult sometimes to just sit and know that he's God and listen for his voice. Yeah. I wished I had some data, but I'm inclined to agree with you at this point. I think probably those of us who have the greatest difficulty listening to other people probably are folks who have a great difficulty hearing the voice of God because we struggle to listen to those who are created in his image. It, it just makes sense to me. There, there again, I don't have any data. I'm just speculating, but I think that's a pretty decent speculation. Thank you for bringing that comment. Um, to add what he said about a smile, I was in my late 30s, and I was living close to Fort Lauderdale Beach, and I was not feeling well. I was depressed and didn't really know what was going on, and it was Wednesday night, so I felt, well, I'll, before I go to church, I'll go to the beach and walk on the beach. Maybe that'll help me get out of what I whatever I was in. And um, I was walking down, and I was just feeling sorry for myself and this lady in a wheelchair that had her head sitting on a pedestal to keep it up. She smiled at me, and I thought, oh, my God, how dare I feel this way? Yeah. It just, Thank you. it was all, I felt so guilty, and I went to church, and praise the Lord, and I snapped out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, while Ellen gives you a hug for the rest of us and, <laughs> and for, your, for your boldness. Let me just remind us, because two or three of the comments have, have prompted this. We are made up of physical, emotional, and spiritual parts. And one of those parts can be diseased, diseased, without it indicating that the other parts are. So that we can be depressed, discouraged, uh, and still be spiritually whole. And I think somebody in this room may need to know that. I've been there. You've been there. Uh, we can be physically ill and be spiritually well. Or the physical and the emotional can drag down the spiritual if we allow it. So it's very, very important to keep in mind that just as there is a triune God, you're a triune being, physical, spiritual, and emotional. And we all need to be working on balance and health in all of those areas. It's not my area. But I've learned some things from personal experience, and your comment reminded me. Thank you. What else? I got a couple up here. A few weeks ago, I was just coming out of the it was a pharmacy, grocery store kind of thing. There was a man walked in, and 
so I just said, you know, smiled and said, hi, hi, how are you? How are you today? You know, just being friendly. And then he started telling me. <laughs> And, you know, on the outside, I'm smiling and listening to him and everything inside. I'm like, you're really irritated. You know, I'm like, I didn't want to hear your life story. It was his birthday tomorrow. And he was, you know, and uh, so I just stood and talked to him for a while. And then I walked out and I thought, how sad. You know, all of a sudden, my heart turned from irritation to compassion because I was a total stranger to him. Yeah. And he so needed somebody to talk to right. that he would talk to somebody who just said, hi, how you doing? You know. Yeah, you found a job and uh, offered an ear. And once again, the message is the same. If we're going to do that, we need to be ready to listen. Sometimes God sends those angels unaware, though, too, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just don't know. Yes. Yeah, very good. Sir. So I, I think it's really funny how people don't like silence because there are times where people will be like telling me their testimony or just telling me something rough that they're going through and I'll sit and like wait for God to tell me to do something or process and they've stopped talking and I'll just say to them like, I'm just like processing this, just give me a minute. And I feel like that may help with that. Um, I have a question, but I'll save that for in a bit. Um, I think it's also interesting because we'll put up walls. A lot of the time I've dealt with depression and different things like that, and I will associate it with so social media. Like, it, it sucks, and it sucks you into it because um, you'll try to just get your confidence from that. Like, how many likes can I get? How many this? How many retweets can I get? How many this? How many that? instead of focusing on what truly um, defines us, which is Christ. Yeah. You, you would be interested, let, let me respond a minute. You would be interested in an assignment that my students do in my class. We just experienced in this room uh, six, well, for, for most folks, four minutes of silence. Mm -hmm. And I asked my students to do six hours. No talk, no text, no check in social media and then write a reflection paper. Uh, you should try it sometime. It is, uh, I, the, the reflections I get are just absolutely fascinating. Uh, everything from, I had no idea. God's been trying to tell me something and I didn't have time to listen. Uh, good spiritual kinds of stuff. Uh, to one young man who comes, comes to mind who uh, had, I mean, he needed a good grade because of scholarship issues. And, but to his credit, and as a matter of integrity, he said, Neff, I went two hours and 20 minutes. I can't do anymore. I admit that I'm addicted to this thing. I hope you can find it in your heart to give me a decent grade, but I can't do this. Uh, so, you know, all of that to say, those of you who wrestled with four minutes, try six hours someday and see how that goes for you. And it, it tells us some things about ourselves. What's keeping us from listening? What are we listening to? What, wh what are the voices? Where are those voices coming from? Yeah. Doesn't, mean, doesn't mean that everything associated with talking and texting and social media is wrong. Please hear my heart on that. It is not. But it does mean that sometimes we become so locked into that stuff that we miss the wannabe disciples around us. 
to just piggyback off that, like God literally says, be still and know that I am God. And yes. it's so hard to do that in our world nowadays where it's just advertisement here, advertisement there, this, that, every other thing, all in your face at one time, yep. every single place. Um, and I will say this, like with the dealing with depression, even if you do ask someone that, it's sad, but they may just put up a wall and say like, oh, I'm good because they really know that that person yeah. might not really care oh. and they just don't want to put their time into that. So they'll just right. fake a smile. Like I've even done that before. Right. And All kinds of stigmas out there, mm -hmm. brother, but the reality is those are two separate issues. Yeah. You can be spiritually well, be and emotionally strong. I do have a small question. Okay. What do you do if you know someone and like every single time you talk with them, they just talk about themselves and talk and you, talk. We've, we've now combined. L last question, because I'm going to have to give him a, a hearty I don't know, I'm afraid, before I get done. But we have now combined yesterday's session, a narcissist, with today's and the importance of listening. And I'm, I'm wondering, some of this depends on who that individual is. If we're talking about family members or somebody who's at high on our top ten list, uh, we never give up. We never give up. But I remember talking to somebody yesterday uh, who, who was struggling with a coworker who was a narcissist. She'd tried all these techniques and probably the techniques that I've offered today. I wonder if we don't come to a point where, boy, this is dangerous. Think it through. I wonder if we don't come to a point where the Lord is saying to us, move on down your list. Put somebody else on your list. We don't cast our pearls before swine. Uh, and I know that's judgmental and bold and maybe not the right word but but it, it's where my mind goes as you raise a question like that